You know, everything in life and business starts with you and your values. And so I really encourage people, especially if they've never done this before, to really pause and take a long, hard look into yourself and identify what you stand for, what you believe in, what you value, what you're all about, because that makes life so much simpler. Life still throws you all the shit it always will, but you know exactly how to respond to it in any given situation in a way that is true to you. And that really is the secret of happiness, living your life and working your work according to your values. So all I'm doing is I'm living my values. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Frame of Mind podcast. How can art bring us hope, joy, and a sense of wellness? It makes us feel connected. It makes us feel loved. Your whole soul opens up. Art saved my life and kept me out of trouble, kept me on the right path. We're tapping into the minds of people who have deeply connected with art in their own lives to find out how art can be a tool for well-being. Join us in listening to their stories on Frame of Mind, an art and wellness podcast from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for joining. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Cindy Gallup. Now, Cindy is many things, and you're going to hear some of the specifics in the conversation. So let me start by painting some broad strokes. Cindy's background is in brand building, marketing, and advertising. In 1998, New York City, she started the U.S. office of the ad agency BBH. That's Bartle Bogle Hegarty. And when I say BBH like that, it makes me sound like I'm, well, part of the business. And you also know that I really like languages. In 2003, she was named Advertising Woman of the Year. She is the founder and CEO of If We Ran the World, which interestingly became a Harvard Business Review case study. She's also the founder of Make Love Not Porn, which is, quote, pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. This is a social sex tech platform designed to promote good sexual behavior and good sexual values. Now, when we get to the conversation, I'm speaking with Cindy about ageism and talking to her about her work with the AARP, which as I see it is sort of health design, patient-centered, person-centered. Let's get to the conversation. There's definite ageism in medicine and healthcare, and I'm wondering about the ageism in the advertising industry and in general in industries that really compelled you to work with the AARP. So, um... I think the first thing that is important for our listeners to know, um, because I've just said that I have not personally encountered ageism, is that I've nevertheless been combating ageism for decades. Um, I left the corporate world um, at the age of 45 back in 2005. And that is why, um, as I said just now, you know, I have not and do not encounter ageism myself because I am, you know, my own master or my own mistress in terms of what I choose to do. And that is no barrier um, to my doing it. Um, that being said, um, ageism is rampant in every single industry. And so the point I've been making for many years is that ageism happens at every point along the age spectrum. You can be dismissed and ignored for being too young, especially for female just as much as you can be dismissed and ignored for being too old, again, especially if you're female. And so I've been speaking out about that and doing everything I can to combat that for many years. Yeah. What about your work? Uh, what is upcoming with the AARP? 
Um, so, um, so nothing's upcoming in that ARP um, hired me um, some years ago now um, for a period of time um, as an influencer for their Disrupt Aging um, initiative, um, which I was very happy to participate in. But um, uh, my contract ended um, several years ago. And so um, there is nothing upcoming, although obviously I'd be very happy to work again with them anytime. And during the time you were working with them, what were you trying to influence? So, um, so w- what I was very pleased about w- with our partnership, and by the way, huge shout out to my key contact at AARP, the amazing Karen Chong, who is their director of audience engagement and, um, you know, social influencer um, uh, um, partnerships um, for their Disrupt Aging Initiative. Um, to a really spectacularly, um, spectacularly brilliant woman. Um, so, so what I was very pleased about was that they reached out and they said, you know, everything you stand for is absolutely in line with what we're doing at Disrupt Aging. And so we'd love to partner with you. And we are really open to whatever you would like to do within that partnership. You know, we welcome your ideas for how we can collaborate and work together. And, you know, I knew immediately what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to partner with AARP and Disrupt Aging to um, change ageism in the advertising industry by changing ageism um, really um, across every aspect of the industry so that it does not manifest as ageism in advertising. Because when you see ageist um, attitudes and stereotypes and cliches expressed in ads, that is absolutely because the advertising industry itself is ageist as hell. And so um, ARP absolutely welcomed this. You know, they, they totally saw that advertising is a very powerful force in popular culture. And, you know, if you want to address ageist attitudes in society at large, then actually addressing ageism in advertising is a great way to do that. And they also understood that the way you do that is by addressing ageism in the advertising industry. So um, what we did was um, I partnered with, with the AARP um, to hold a series of dinner salons across the country. So we held one on the West Coast in LA. We held one um, in the middle of the country in Chicago. We held one here on the East Coast in New York. And I invited to these salons um, basically my friends in the advertising industry. So these were people who are leaders in, you know, strategy, in um, creative, and and a real kind of mixture and a very diverse range of people. Um, And the reason for convening these leaders of the industry was because by the time you are in, in a leadership position in the advertising industry, you are older. And so this was a really fantastic opportunity to talk about ageism in the advertising industry including how these leaders felt about it themselves and how they were experiencing it. And um, we um, made it very clear that at these dinner salons, the conversation was completely confidential. We, we publicized the fact that we were doing this. You know, we absolutely posted on social. We had great photos of, you know, the lineup and the gathering. We identified all the people. But what was actually said um, in terms of the discussion we reassured everybody, went nowhere beyond the people around that table. And so what we were able to have were very free and frank discussions about um, the issue of ageism and also about how people felt about it themselves. 
And then, you know, from those conversations, I and the team at AARP um, basically took away um, a number of action points and insights, which I then crafted into um, a series of micro actions for the advertising industry that would end ageism in the industry, um, which was published by um, AdAge. Um, uh, again, this would have been back in, gosh, um, uh, 2019, so several years ago. Would you say from what you've seen that change occurred? Um, sadly, not enough. Um, so, you know, to, um, th- um, this is the um, this is the thing about any movement like this. We need many, many people collectively collaborating um, to change things. And and also because, you know, and this is a message that I've been putting out to my industry for many years um, if you want to end stereotyping in advertising, it's very simple. Just have the ads created, approved, produced, directed, and photographed by the people being stereotyped. It's that simple. It's what I mean when I say, don't talk diversity. Don't create inspirational, motivational campaigns about diversity. Don't do PR stunts about diversity. Just be diverse. And so, you know, Ageism and advertising changes and disappears when older people create the ads. And unfortunately, at the moment, because of ageism in the ad industry, older people are being managed out and forced out of the industry. And unfortunately, the pandemic has not helped that because of the challenges businesses have faced um, in the past couple of years. And do you think women and women of color have had even more of that effect than men? Oh, categorically. Um, you know, ageism impacts women far more than it impacts men. Yeah. Uh, in doing some reading and listening um, in preparation for our conversation, um, you were described in a few places as outspoken. And I'm wondering how that resonates with you. Do you think you're just spoken or would you actually say, yeah, I'm outspoken? I find it very funny when people describe me as outspoken provocative, um, you know, um, controversial. All I'm ever doing is saying what I think. So no, I don't regard myself as outspoken at all. And I think the fact that people describe as outspoken reflects far more on society as a whole. And the fact that people think that saying what you think is outspoken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. You speak a lot on topics that are topics we cover here at the Visible Voices, and um, some of the audience members may not have a Cindy Gallup 101. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit on um, your feelings about imposter syndrome, uh, invisibility, and using one's voice. Well, um, to, uh, and again, I do just want to make make it very clear to our listeners that I'm the founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn, and that is my full-time focus. Um, I'm very happy to engage in podcast interviews like this one, which is where I get to express my views, which is what um, you're now referencing, Risa. Um, and so, you know, I was recently asked um, to come on a podcast um, actually started by two white men in Australia um, from the advertising industry. Um, called the imposterous, um, which I said to them, I think, um, you know, it's a very interesting concept because they have a podcast that is dedicated entirely to imposter syndrome. 
And so all they do every week is interview different people across a whole range of creative industries and occupations about their views on imposter syndrome. And so, you know, when they um, invited me onto their podcast and interviewed me, um, I said to them that as far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing as imposter syndrome. There are only people, especially women, who have never been appreciated, valued, rewarded, and championed and celebrated in the way that they should. Yeah. And their reaction? Oh, um, th- um, they thought that was a fantastic viewpoint. They were very pleased with the conversation. <laughs> and you have spoken, again, in some of your other conferences and, you know, realizing that you're, you know, it's adjacent complementary to your current focus though about women and encouraging women to use their voice and to be themselves and to be authentically themselves and to sort of abandon perhaps uh, how they've been socialized or societal norms or, you know, feeling like they have to fit into uh, a cis-hetero white male norm. Well, you know, I think it all boils down, um, Risa, to what I believe is a starting point for everything, which is You know, everything in life and business starts with you and your values. And so I really encourage people, especially if they've never done this before, to really pause and take a long, hard look into yourself and identify what you stand for, what you believe in, what you value, what you're all about, because that makes life so much simpler. Life still throws you all the shit it always will, but you know exactly how to respond to it in any given situation in a way that is true to you. And that really is the secret of happiness, living your life and working your work according to your values. So all I'm doing is I'm living my values. You know, I express my values, I act on my values, I articulate my values, but, you know, I don't see it as anything that I took up or am consciously you know, actively working at. I'm, I'm simply living and working and speaking my values. You have three sisters. You grew up in a family of girls. You champion women. You promote women. You amplify women. Um, you know, you advocate making a lot of money so that we can help women. Um, what does having your sisters and growing up in this family of women, strong women who have each forged a different path, played into make love not porn and make uh, end into your amplification of women? Um, Honestly, again, um, I would not draw any direct um, lines between that and and what I do today. I mean, you know, um, and and again, for the benefit of our listeners who may not know this, um, my father was English, my mother's Chinese. Um, My parents were desperate for a son. They had four daughters instead. Um, they kept trying, but after two miscarriages after my younger sister, my mother, you know, gave up. And my sisters and I are enormously glad that my parents never had a son. Because with a Chinese mother and an old-fashioned English father, that would have completely changed the dynamic in the family. And he would have been undoubtedly the favoured one, because that's the way it is in, you know, Asian families, sadly, and and in old-fashioned English families. And so, um, I mean, I think my sisters and I were all very much helped by the fact that we were four girls and we, and we did not have a brother. Um, my sisters um, all do very different things to me. Um, and I've seen 
you know, um, and I, I, I won't I won't get specific about this because um, I'm sure they'd rather I didn't. But, but I've seen how in each of their careers, where each of them is enormously successful in their own sphere, they have come up against the patriarchy and the patriarchal society and business world we live in. And so that that undoubtedly motivates me to do more of what I'm doing. But I'm um, but I was doing that anyway without you know, um, as I said, I don't think that particularly feeds in any more than having given us a good start by not having a brother to be favoured over us. How do you seek to make a difference in advertising um, to make safer workplaces for women? So um, again, I should make my um, our audience aware that I do not work in the advertising corporate world. Um, I left the corporate world 17 years ago. And so I, I have nothing um, no involvement with the corporate world of, of advertising at all. Um, that being said, um, uh, five years ago, when the New York Times exposure of Harvey Weinstein happened, um, I've been speaking out about sexual harassment in business generally and in the advertising industry for many years, since long before the Me Too movement started. And I spoke out about sexual harassment publicly because nobody else would. And so, again, for many years before um, the Me Too movement took hold, I would hear from women in the advertising industry who would write to me about what had happened to them. And I would exhort them to tell their stories publicly in the media and name names. And they were always too terrified to. Um, And so when the Harvey Weinstein saga broke um, back in October of 2017, I posted on Facebook and I said, women of the advertising industry, the time has come to name names. You know, just as all these brave women have stood up and named Harvey Weinstein. And I said, you know, women of the advertising industry, email me and I will put you in touch with trusted reporters in our industry press who can tell these stories and break them publicly. And, you know, I did that, as I said, as a continuation of what I'd been doing for years. And I really did not expect the avalanche that hit my inbox. And um, what showed up in my inbox was so horrifying that um, a few weeks later, I was keynoting the 3% conference. And at the very last minute, I completely rewrote my talk to talk about everything that showed up in my inbox. And so rather than have me go over it in detail, which we don't have time for, I encourage our audience to go to YouTube and Google um, Cindy Gallup 3% Conference 2017 and watch the first 15 minutes of my talk because you will see what I'm talking about. Um, And the difficulty there is that, um, you know, I stood on that stage at the 3% Conference in 2017 and said, sexual harassment is the single biggest business issue facing our and every other industry. I thought it was diversity inclusion. It's not because sexual harassment forces out of every industry, the women um, who would otherwise become the female leaders who would bring diversity inclusion to the industry. And a year later, I stood on the 3% conference stage again. And I said, you know, a year ago, I told you that I was going to help you break these stories and get names named. And I'm here to tell you a year later that I've spectacularly failed. And I failed because the women and the men in our industry who've suffered this and borne witness um, are all understandably 
too frightened to speak up because the powerful men doing the harassing are the gatekeepers of everything. They're the gatekeepers of jobs, promotions, pay raises, awards. And I said to the audience, powerful men in our industry who think you've gotten away with it, you haven't. Powerful women in our industry who've enabled those powerful men, you haven't gotten away with it either because I will keep working to make get these stories told. So for the last five years, um, what this has involved me in is a huge amount of unpaid emotional labor, which, which I can't afford to engage in um, any longer. Um, people still write to me, and now I'm at the point where I go, you know, if you're ready to speak up and name names in the media, I will help you, but I just can't, you know, um, the powerful men at the top of our industry are being paid millions to keep women out of leadership. Nobody is paying me anything to get women into leadership. And I can't, I can't survive um, in this scenario doing this huge amount of unpaid work when I struggle um, with my own business because nobody will fund Make Love Not Porn. And I have to support myself alongside it through consulting and public speaking. So, um, you know, I continue to try and make this happen. And I'm very happy to say that literally last week, um, a young woman in Australia um, posted on LinkedIn for International Women's Day and named her sexual harasser. Um, she, she had um, spoken out originally anonymously about her sexual harassment in the past. She had then identified herself as that anonymous person. And now she took the very brave step of naming her harasser. And I've been supporting her and posting that all over social, saying, if nobody speaks up, nothing changes. And what I've been doing, again, for a long time is I've been encouraging women to speak up in groups. And I really urge women to understand that in the current climate, you know, nobody is going to take legal action against you. Because if you tell your story loud and clear and to the right investigative journalists who will bring witnesses in, you know, nobody can then be seen to be taking legal action against you because that climate is no longer here. Backing up one step into the fear, um, what is your explanation for the fear uh, that people have? Because, as I said, these powerful men are the gatekeepers of everything. They are the gatekeepers of jobs, promotions, raises, career paths, awards. And so the belief is that if you name them, you'll never work again. And people said to me, Cindy, I have a family. I can't do that. And what, and what people don't understand is that that is absolutely not the case. Those men like telling women they have the power to destroy their careers, and they don't. And, you know, also, um, when I, you know, began dealing with this avalanche five years ago, and I began understanding um, how all-pervasive this fear was, and by the way, um, not just amongst women, but amongst men, I then did several things to try and remove that fear. Um, and bear, bear in mind again that this is me on my own um, because nobody else seemed to be rallying around thinking of ways that they could do this either. So first of all, uh, and, 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 and I want to give a shout out to the advertising industry trade media who are very supportive through all of this and wrote stories about what I wanted them to put out into the industry. So I did three things. The first was that I said to the industry, 
I want every advertising agency and holding company to pledge to hire whistleblowers because whistleblowers are the heroes of our industry. These are the people who have integrity and principles and are standing up for those things and doing what is right. Everybody should be falling over themselves to hire whistleblowers. I want every advertising agency and holding company to pledge that they will offer interviews to and potentially hire anybody who blows the whistle on sexual harassment anywhere. Now, I could get my friends who are in smaller agencies to absolutely publicly put their hands up and pledge this, but I couldn't get anybody in large agencies or holding companies to. The second thing I did was I set out to guilt the men. And so, again, um, the trade media put, put this out. I said, men of the advertising industry who stood by, watched, listened, stayed silent, laughed, participated, joined in. Now is your time to redeem yourself and be able to look yourself in the mirror every morning. Come forward. That worked. So I had a number of men approaching me off the back of that initiative, but they were equally terrified to extraordinary degrees. And and again, I've talked about this publicly. I recommend that our audience also Google um, my 2019 3% conference talk on YouTube, The Future for White Men in Advertising, where I talk about this. But the flip side of sexual harassment for women is often bullying and abuse for men. Men reached out to me who had been utterly traumatized by the bullies and abusers in our industry. And that drives a whole different dynamic of why people stay silent. Because, you know, men wrote to me who had PTSD because of how much they've been bullied by other men in the industry, how much they've been abused. And they couldn't go to HR, speak up about it, because our societal construct of masculinity does not accord with the idea that a man could be destroyed by another man. So that was a problem. Um, and then the third thing I did was um, I put the word out to women that you can break NDAs. As a couple of very brave women did with the Harvey Weinstein scenario, you know, A, you can break an NDA, and B, you may have signed an NDA, your partner didn't, your family didn't, your friends didn't, your colleagues didn't. They can speak up on your behalf. You know, again, this happened with the Harvey Weinstein case where people's partners spoke up. So these were all things that I did to try and get more stories broken and more names named. They all failed. Why name names? You know, for people that their first step of comfort is anonymity, either themselves or for their uh, predators. Uh, why is it important to name names? So when our audience watches the first 15 minutes of my 3% conference 2017 talk, you will see that I say... Our industry has been publishing anonymous stories for decades. And whenever anybody reads those anonymous, sto anonymous stories, the women empathize and the men don't give a shit. And bear in mind that because of the avalanche in my inbox, I know the names. And so you will also see me in that talk say to the audience, I go through all the things that horrified me about watching off my inbox. And I go, I'm horrified by the names. These are names of men who have sat across from me, looked me in the eye and told me how much they support women. 
these are the names of men who I thought were good guys. I thought were friends. Okay. And when those names get named, then people see how systemic and how endemic this is in the advertising industry and every other industry. And that's the only way that anything ever changes. For audience members that are wondering, well, how can a man harass another man if it's not sexual? Can you give a specific example of how that might look in the workplace? Um, I would say to anybody in the audience asking that, think about all the times you've been shamed, belittled, humiliated in a business context. That shit happens to men as well. And and very deliberately. I remember one man telling me that, um, you know, he was a creative in a creative department of an agency where the um, the executive creative director was single, was you know, um, sexually harassing and having affairs with junior women in the agency who had around him a whole band of male sycophants in his credit department or cheering him on. And this credit director walked into this man's office one day and the man um, who shared this story with me had a photo of his wife and his baby on, on his desk. And this director picked up the photo, looked at it, looked at him and said, well, you're, you're not going to last long here then, and walked out. Okay, so, so men can be absolutely bullied and abused and harassed into um, complete trauma, um, actually, as, as many men. Um, plus, plus also, by the way, I heard from men who were sexually harassed and abused by powerful gay men in our industry. So obviously there's a ton of that going on as well in that scenario. You have spoken when people have asked you about mentorship that uh, you think rather than mentoring, we should champion. And the way I've sort of decided to um, think of it is it's a combination of sponsorship plus mentorship in that um, you are particularly intentional and specific about mentioning people, bringing up people, their work, their brand, their products. Um, with the way of getting them out there and championing them. And I think it's actually a really good and effective practice. And I'm wondering the origins of your development of the concept of championing and how you actually uh, execute it on a daily basis. So I've been urging women for years to strike the word mentor from their vocabulary. Because women are constantly urged to acquire mentors and inherent within the term mentor is a lack of action. Mentor sounds touchy-feely, chat, 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 shoulder to cry on. We don't need mentors. We need champions because champions are people who make shit happen for you. A champion is somebody who behind closed boardroom doors slams their fist on the table and goes, there's only budget for one raise left in my departmental budget. It's going to Jane, not John. Women need what men get all the time. People willing to go out on a limb for them. People willing to stake their own reputation on vouching for and championing a woman. And so as far as I'm concerned, you know, championing somebody means you know, to, um, promoting them to other people, making shit happen for them, recommending them for opportunities, you know, putting their name forward, 
just making shit happen for them. And that's what I would like to see everybody do for men. Make shit happen for women. And I especially urge that because I and many other women have found this um, syndrome at regular intervals in the past where well-meaning men go, oh, you know, you should talk to so-and-so. And the only reason men say that is because we're both women. Fuck that shit. Okay. No, 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 no. Women don't need to only talk to women when it's the men who have the money, have the door opening ability, have the contacts. Any man who wants to help a woman, you make those introductions yourself. You recommend her to other men the same way you recommend men to other men. That's what championing is all about. So I was super psyched when Cindy said yes to joining me for a podcast episode. And before we get to the Risa wrap-up, here's a word from the host and creator of the Ultrasound Gel podcast. Hi, this is Mike Pratz from the Ultrasound Gel podcast. Gel stands for Gathering Evidence from the Literature. In each episode, we closely examine the latest research in the field of -of point-of-care ultrasound. Our goal is to make this information easily digestible for clinicians so that we can all use this valuable modality safely to help our patients. The RISA wrap-up. So audience, as you know, the Visible Voices podcast covers the topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. And Cindy is certainly about equity and about current trends. In fact, I think she is a current trend. I was so glad when she said yes to joining me for a conversation, and she came across my radar via social media. And then I started doing a deep dive, and that deep dive took me to some of her talks and some of the podcast episodes that she's been on. She says, quote, women challenge the status quo because we are never it. She's been a speaker at the 3% conference yearly. And unfortunately, uh, recently it was announced that the 3% conference, which champions diversity and female leadership in the ad industry, is ending after a decade. Much of what Cindy speaks about, what She talks about in terms of salary equity, women using their voice, women not making it to leadership, sexual harassment, diversity, equity, inclusion in the ad industry. I see analogous situations in the healthcare industry, and I think you do too. So as always, please join, raise your voice, use your voice to help make a better, safer, more respectful world. That's it. Talk to you next week. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.